The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Here at the Guild, we have a roster of live events happening throughout the opera season, such as pre-performance lectures, artist interviews, and opera courses that run in the afternoons, evenings, and weekends. And our podcast frequently draws upon these classes and events for our content. This week's episode features a pre-performance lecture on the final new production of the 2015-2016 Met season, Electra. Presenting today's lecture is radio commentator and writer William Berger, who many of you may recognize from Sirius XM's Met Opera Radio and the famed Met Opera Quiz. Will has an incredible wealth of knowledge and always brings an added level of depth to all of his presentations, whether on the radio or otherwise, and today's lecture is no exception. As you can imagine, his lecture on Electra is dense with information, and you may also notice that he makes frequent reference to a slideshow that was used during the live event, so to help you follow along, we have made this slideshow available for download at www.metguild.org podcast. I hope you will be able to follow along with this less-than-simple opera and that you enjoy taking a look inside Strauss's Electra. Hi, thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, what I'm going to do tonight is talk about some background of Electra, what it is and what it isn't, what uh, Richard Strauss and his librettist Hugo von Hofmannsthal thought they were up to in creating this, their first collaboration, first of many collaborations, within the context of their time and place and what's behind the story and the opera as we know it for them and for us, uh, and where we are with it now. What I won't be talking about, and there are many people who will be in various places and talking about it well, is the history of the performance of the opera, because it is very much, the role of Electra is, well, the opera is called Electra for very good reasons. The role is exceedingly difficult, legendarily difficult, and if you're good at it, everyone will talk about you for another hundred years. Um, and of course, the best Electra who ever sang the role was the one you just missed by 10 years. That, it's one of those sorts of operas. It's legendary, so it exists in mythic terms. Um, so I'll leave that to other people, except in a few places where it will come up in our story. Uh, I have a picture here of Richard Strauss in January of 1910, exactly one year after the premiere of Elektra in the city of Dresden in Germany, with which Richard Strauss had a, a long and uh, uh, frequent, what would you call it, collaboration? I don't know. He had many of his operas premiered in Dresden. Um, and uh, so this is roughly in the time frame we're speaking of, and I like this picture because we either see him as a very young, very handsome man or a, a very old, sort of cuddly 
older man, but this is who he was in 1909. And where he was in his career is he was not only quite famous already, but he had sort of unofficially been crowned. Everyone had been looking for a successor to Richard Wagner as the champion of German opera. And Strauss took his time getting to this position uh, by writing songs and then famously these tone poems, which narrative symphonies in the 1880s and 1890s, and easing his way toward opera very intelligently. And he had two operas that did not, were not, did not get him crowned as the successor to Wagner, Guntram and Feuersnot, although they are, in retrospect, pretty good, to say the least. Um, and then, was, uh, then hit the big time, as you could say, with Zalome in 1905, based on the Oscar Wilde play, More on Whom, in a few moments. Now his adaptation of uh, Salome was roughly, he worked off of a German translation from the French and trimmed a lot of it, but basically did m a lot of that work himself. He was looking for a librettist, a collaborator, and he found Hugo von Hofmannsthal and decided to work with him. Here he is in 1909. Now, what, where he was at this point was also becoming quite famous. He had been part of an avant-garde group, Jung Wien, Young Vienna, uh, in the 1890s and early decades, decade of the first decade of the 20th century, and uh, more on which in just a moment. But he had written this play, Electra, in 1903. I'm not sure when he wrote it, but that's when it was published. Uh, an adaptation of Sophocles. It was, it received some attention, including a notable production by Max, the famous Max Reinhardt troupe in Berlin, which was kind of playing the palace in those days. That, that meant you were a big playwright. Uh, now, Richard Strauss had written Zalome and caused a scandal, a huge scandal. Uh, there were incidences of the cast being tossed in jail for the night throughout uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire after they performed it, which of course made for great box office. It was also instantly recognized as a, a score that had changed music. And if you want to read about Alex Ross in listening to the 20th century, the rest is noise. Really, it's a big exegesis on Salome and how it fried everybody's brains and how we're still dealing with that right now, right from the first note, if you remember the clarinet. What was scandalous, uh, and then word came out that Strauss and Hoffmannsthal were collaborating on Elektra. What was scandalous about this was not so much that it was completely radical, what these two were doing, but that these two who were, for all they were uh, good at creating scandals, they were also very establishment. One is a composer and one is a poet. Uh, and that becomes part of our story, too. I'll get to in just a moment. 
Um, the plot of Electra is very simple. Some plots are not simple. Uh, Electra is in the form that we have it, unless you get into the backstory. And there is no end to the backstory. It goes back to the beginning of time, as the Greeks understood it. But for our purposes here, uh, what we have is the woman, Electra, who everyone will tell you is obsessed with vengeance. Her mother has killed her father, the King Agamemnon, when he returned from the Trojan War. She had her reasons. He had sacrificed their daughter, Electra's sister, Iphigenia, at Aulis uh, before the Trojan War, a human sacrifice, and which does not come up in the, this libretto. You would think, as Electra deals, obsesses on the past, you would think somewhere in there, someone would say, well, you know he did kill your sister. But no, not, not in our story here. Um, and not only that, but uh, her mother, Clytemnestra has taken up with Aegisthus, another relative, incidentally, several times over, more on which in a moment. Um, he's, he's sort of the bad guy. Um, there aren't too many good guys, but he's definitely the bad guy. And she is living with him as the king and, uh, of Mycenae, ancient Mycenae which we are to understand is one of the prime cities in Greece in this time, right after the Trojan War. She's waiting for, her brother has either been exiled or has left, it's very vague in this libretto and purposely so, uh, and is elsewhere. She is waiting for him to return so they can kill their mother um, and her lover Aegisthus. She also has a sister Chrysothemis, or Chrysothemis in German, uh, who seems to be more conventional. She wants what she calls a Weibschicksal, the, the destiny of a woman. She wants to have children, and she wants a woman's destiny. Um, there's a confrontation between Electra and uh, her mother, Clytemnestra, that's very chilling, um, where Electra basically tell, taunts her and says, we're going to kill you. Not in so many words. Well, yeah, actually in so many words. Oh, <laughs> 
is word that Orestes, her brother, her long-awaited brother, has been killed. Clytemnestra seems very happy about this. A man appears, three guesses who it is. It is Orestes. There's a, rec a great recognition scene between the two of them. And without much more ceremony, he goes into the palace and kills Clytemnestra, and presumably he also kills uh, Aegisthus. And people are, there's a certain amount of rejoicing, but Electra, and it's very vague what happens in the opera, but this victory dance she has been planning for a long time overwhelms her, and as the libretto says, she falls senseless. They do that in opera. They fall senseless. We don't know why. When they don't want to say she dies, some operas say she dies, others say she falls senseless. Elsa does that in Lohengrin. We don't know what happens to her. It's rather convenient for him, but that's, that's what happens there. Okay. Now, in order to tell this story, Richard Strauss, this is what every commentary on this will tell you, pushed the bounds of tonality, but did not go beyond them. Now, this was in 1909, especially in this milieu very much involved in Hoffmannsthal's Vienna, uh, Richard Strauss from Munich nearby. Um, people were pushing tonality, tone, the musical system we've known in the West for several hundred years, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, well beyond this. Arnold Schoenberg was already at work and had already raised more than a few eyebrows with things that he was up to, and he wasn't the only one. Now, as I said, Richard Strauss had caused a, a musical scandal as well as a dramatic one with Salome, but he was not the most radical musician going. The scandal was just that he did it so well, I think, that, even, that all audiences had to take the ride with the music and, and listen. One of the interesting things that he does in Salome, and one of the things that makes that opera seem so perverse, besides its libretto, which is clearly quite perverse, is that not that there are parts of Zalome that are a little dissonant, but there are so many parts of it that are ravishingly beautiful. And what is going on on stage when the music it gets its most romantic and lush is a problem. You actually can get seasick because what you're seeing on the stage, what you're hearing, are at odds with each other. Here's a woman committing necrophilia with a biblical prophet. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever heard. That's a problem. And it was a big problem at the Metropolitan, of course, when it played for one night, and the powers that be said that's, they couldn't arrest everybody, unfortunately, or they would have. Um, and it's very interesting, because among the people in the audience that night was Giacomo Puccini. Uh, Puccini and Puccini, the heir to Verdi, and Strauss, the heir to Wagner, this is the newspapers talking, not them, were always very aware of what the other one was up to, much more than they let on in many ways. The same thing is going to happen in Electra, that even though people talk about it as even a little bit more dissonant than Zalome, which it is, and that the part that critics will say, this makes it a hard opera for audiences, and they still say this, and I don't think this is at all true, that for one thing, nobody cares about dissonance anymore. It's not a problem. Music is dissonant at this point in history. That's not going to scare anybody away. 
I, as a lecturer and commentator, I spend a lot more time explaining melody to audiences today than dissonance. Bel canto and verismo, I have to spend a lot of time with the score on. So the fact that there are parts of Electra that are not do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, I don't think is a problem anymore. Uh, what is the problem? Well, I think where he, it's quite the opposite, where he uses melody, just as in Salome, uh, it's disturbing, it intrudes, and it's, it's remarkably convincing. There was the 1909, uh, the first, the premier set design by Alfred Roller, who became very famous, lived for a long time. Um, and I'll just have that up there. It's very interesting because Esapekka Salonen, when he was up speaking with the conductor of our production of Salome, says that in Electra, melody is always a dream and a flattering illusion. It's false. Every time Electra uses it, she uses it very beautifully. She's telling a lie. If it's beautiful, don't believe it. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. Modern science, there, there have been a lot of studies about melody triggers dopamine in the brain and is calming to people. That as much as we've worked with 12-tone and everything else, people still return to a good tune, even though all the great minds tell us we shouldn't like it. Um, it also, another thing of the common wisdom is that after that, this, this has been repeated by a lot of people, a lot of smart people, including Adorno and many others, that Richard Strauss kind of scared himself a little bit with the score of Electra and retreated into a conservatism. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, anytime you use the words conservative, avant-garde, or anything in music, they, they tend to not actually mean anything. Ask any musician, any instrumentalist, what's the most difficult score they play. I've, I've been doing this for years. 99 out of 100 will say De Rosenkavalier. The one extra one out of 100 will say Electra. So as far as what's dissonant and what's melodious, it's not, there's a superficial and there's a deeper level. But I think where he does use melody abundantly in De Rosenkavalier, I think we would learn from Electra that he, is, he might be using it as a dream, as an illusion as the entire look back on this anachronistic 18th century that never existed, it's too beautiful to have existed in Vienna in Der Rosenkavalier, might be meant to be not understood in literal terms. We'll talk about that next season, because Der Rosenkavalier is full of interesting things. But the problem, that uh, the reason that Electra has not been the center of the repertory, the problems, I mean problems in in the good sense, like your Shakespeare professor would say. The problems with Electra are the same, well, one, it's very difficult to sing, but of course so is everything else in Strauss. The, the same problem people have with any opera, which is what am I being asked to believe about these characters I'm seeing on the stage? Who are they? And that's uh, what I'll talk about the rest of the time here. We have a weird plot, as I mentioned to you. It, nobody wins. And there's no morality in any modern sense. There, I said, I guess this was the bad guy, but there are really no good guys. And that's an interesting point in Greek mythology also, which I want to talk about. Uh, it's not about doing what's actually good and bad in many ways until a certain point. 
and that also in 1909, we're kind of talking about the morning after Friedrich Nietzsche and beyond good and evil and thinking beyond good and evil, uh, that all comes up here. That came up in Greek mythology in the Odyssey, there's where everyone has an epithet, you know, like um, eagle-eyed Hector and this sort of thing. They, they use blameless Aegisthus. Even when, when Homer or whoever wrote it is talking about how awful Aegisthus was, the, his epithet as a hero was blameless Aegisthus. So their idea of right and wrong is not, is not the typical one. That's part of what makes this a hard opera. Um, so let's look a little bit about what was going on with all that with Hoffmannsthal and his milieu. Uh, Sigmund Freud is happening in Vienna, and Hoffmannsthal and his uh, members of Jung Wien are very involved uh, with his thought at the time, which is still quite new. Again, here's Freud not as the cuddly older man that we tend to see in pictures, because people are still saying, what is he talking about? Uh, he, of course, is speaking, he speaks very much on Electra, coins the term the Electra uh, complex as an analog to the Oedipus complex, um, which has been misunderstood and rather oversimplified as a father-obsessed young woman, which you can see in the opera that we have, but I think there's way more to it than that. Um, I think Electra is, in fact, a principle, but not a father obsession. Uh, She's the dawn of morality, of our modern understanding of, wait a second, what's right and wrong? I, I've got to listen to myself about that. How do, I, how do I feel about this? And in this case, there is something really, really, really wrong with this family. <laughs> and I'm going to set it right somehow, however painful that is. Now, my idea here is that Electra herself, in this opera as it's presented to us, both musically and in the libretto, is the birth of psychotherapy and therapy and counseling and recovery and all these issues that have defined the following hundred years. It's the inner journey. Clytemnestra, the mother, conversely, represents the outer journey, the old order. She says so at times. She says. What am I going to do to end my misery? You who know, you're clever, she keeps saying to, everyone keeps saying to Electra. And everything has a proper ritual to it. It's a line from the libretto. What do I need to do? Doesn't matter what it is. Sacrifice, I'll kill everyone. She tries drugs, outside solution, chemical solutions. They don't work anymore. The house of Atreus, we'll get to this, this family, the older members of the family represent this old order in which you do external things to be right with the gods. You commit sacrifices, whatever. Um, or to put it in terms of cultural anthropology, Clytemnestra represents shame culture, while Electra represents emerging guilt culture. We live in guilt culture. There's a lot of riddles, everything's riddles, as there are in Greek mythology. And furthermore, the libretto abounds, abounds with references to filth, to excrement, to bestiality. 
they're there. I don't know. I the in our production the um, the translations are part of the production. They're projected onto the stage, which is interesting, but um, they're not too toned down. All of that is there. Um, and I think these are pointers toward Freud's theories of infantile sexuality, of polymorphous perversity, that non-genitally specific sexuality of the infant that Freud spoke about. It's primal stuff. Uh, and I think the connection, this is one Freud made also in, Greek, in his study of Greek myth, is that infantile sexuality is akin to Greek myth. It doesn't work with right and wrong. It just reacts. What do I have to do in order to make this right is not a matter of what do I have to do that's right in order to make this right. Now we who are evolved in civilization or repressed by civilization, uh, Freud waffled on which we were, can turn to one, to Greek mythology, to understand Freudian theory or vice versa. Um, Chrysothemis, the well-adjusted one in the family, in this family that's a relative term, uh, keeps saying to Electra also, you are so wise. It's an interesting use of wise. It's the same as in something that's going to come up for a few minutes, the ring of the Nibelung. When the, wise does not mean discerning. Wise means you know stuff, knowledgeable. Big difference. It's not Solomonian wisdom. Um, she says, you, you can find a way for us to get out of this house, for us to escape. And Electra says, no. We have to take action. In other words, you can't think your way into mental health. You have to cut some stuff up and cut some stuff out. Arthur Schnitzler, we'll come back to him too. I love this picture. I don't know what he's made up as. I think he looks like Werther. Um, a great writer who was Hoffmannsthal's closest contact in this group of avant-gardists, Jung Fien. Um, Arthur Schnitzler was the one person Freud claimed to envy his knowledge of human psychology. Um, we know him from the source of, if you've seen the movie La Ronde, or the play of movie Max O'Fools, also Traum Novella, that was the basis of Eyes Wide Shut, of Stanley Kubrick, a massively misunderstood work. Um, Schnitzler was also part of this group along with Freud. We also have going on at this time, before I get into myth, something else, which is uh, the, sim the symboliste and the, and the decadent, the symbolists and the decadence uh, working all around um, throughout lots of intellectual circles. We who love opera know the primary work of Claude Debussy, Pelles and Melisande. One of the things that they were working with was uh, synesthesia which is one's senses referring to each other. Now, we talk about the Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work of art from Wagner. We tend to talk about that in a very narrow way, about uh, just, well, we'll get all the best music and words and dramaturgy and staging. Well, that's part of it. But people in 1900, especially in Vienna, 
We're talking about the Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work of art, in a much bigger way. In all of life, and including the senses, synesthesia, the idea of tasting music, and so on and so forth, which you get a lot of in Peleus and Melisande, where people will ask questions and say, like, what do you hear? And she'll answer, don't touch me. And again, massively misunderstood. That's what's going on. Much of it uh, from the ideas of Oscar Wilde. Um, again, much more than a very clever wit. He's a force in intellectual history. And, and if we're going to understand Richard Strauss, we need to know that. Um, who wrote in The Picture of Dorian Gray, to cure the soul by means of the senses, to cure the senses by means of the soul. This was the goal. And then, of course, there's Zalome, which is uh, his play written in French because, as the Princess Julie says in War and Peace, mes amis, there are certain things you simply can't say in Russian uh, or in English. Um, and uh, very much on people's minds. Now, when I say the Gesamtkunstwerk was even bigger than just in art, I uh, had the chance to work in architecture and design for many years at where they also, the Gesamtkunstwerk became an obsession for people there. And in Vienna of the time, we had, for example, the Vienna Secession building, uh, which is still there. And if you happen to see the Met's production of Deflator Mouse, in case you were wondering what that huge thing was in Act Two, it's this upside down um, uh, from the Vienna Secession building um, designed by Josef Ulbricht. But also in details of it, we'll see here such Greek motifs as the Gorgons, uh, laurel leaves sacred to Apollo, the owl sacred to Athena, and all these weird things going on. So why all this Greek stuff besides in Vienna in 1900? Between Freud and design and Hoffmannsthal. There's also uh, archaeology having some great moments that people were talking about right before this. Recently, of course, people have thought the, Tro the myths of the Trojan War for many years were fables, that is, made up. And along comes, famously, Schliemann, the archaeologist, Hermann Schliemann, and who digs up Troy. Says, look, I found Helen's headdress. Well, it wasn't Helen's headdress, but that's all right. So and he thought, well, that's not enough. I'm going to go dig up Mycenae, show you that that existed. And he does. And he digs up Mycenae. Says, look, I found Agamemnon's death mask. Well, it wasn't Agamemnon's death mask, but that's beside the point. The point was that Troy and Mycenae actually existed and became real in a whole new way around 1900. Furthermore, Sir Arthur Evans went digging all around, including in Mycenae some more, and in Knossos in Crete, and found all these tablets and just rather brilliantly deciphered this language, linear B, there is a linear A also, which if you decipher it, you will be very famous and they'll be talking about you. We have not yet, in all this time, deciphered linear A. But that's OK, because most of the things are written in linear B. And what he found was that all, this whole civilization from Crete, this old, old pre-Trojan War, which we now know happened, uh, great civilization which was tied in with Egypt. Egypt, wow, 
Helen in Egypt? That's crazy. What's going on here? This all actually happened. And that Mycenae really was a, a capital and a very important place. And Agamemnon, whether or not that was him, really was a great leader. So this stuff, these very mysterious myths, were real again in 1900 in a way they hadn't been in a long time. They were real historically, and then they were, re they were real personally through the work of Freud and indirectly a lot of other people. Um, it no longer needed the fable-like ornamentation you would get in Idomeneo, in Mozart's Idomeneo, which, in which Electra makes this unlikely appearance. Um, it could be treated in a new way. And our sources of the story of this family, the morning after the Trojan War, so to speak, are threefold. And this can be confusing because they tell different stories, even though these dramatists, whose work we still have, knew each other, knew each other's work, and were almost sort of pushing each other aside, saying, no, 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 that's not what happened. What really happened was this artistic license in a very Athenian, golden age way. In other words, nobody was too concerned about what was the right story. They were concerned with what was the true story. Hoffmannsthal's, uh, oh, by the way, very quickly, these were all trilogies, uh, the other parts being lost. This one, The Libation Bearers, is the only one of the stories dealing with Electra whose trilogy still exists. Uh, so, in other words, we know what happens, quote unquote, according to Aeschylus. We don't know what happens, what Sophocles wanted us to think happens at the end of the story, which becomes part of our story, too. So, now a little bit more backstory according to Sophocles. Don't take notes on this, it's meant to be confusing, especially with my great red lines here. The point is here that. Agamemnon is said to be descended not only from Zeus, uh, I don't have the women here because that's a whole other issue, but uh, some other famous names, Tantalus, who started all this problem, that's where the curse came down, when he served up his children to the gods in a banquet to see if they would notice, to find out if the gods knew everything. That's great-grandfather, so right away we got some problems. Pelops, which, who gave his name to uh, Peloponnesus, an uh, uh, area of Greece. Atreus, who had two children, Agamemnon and Menelaus, more on whom in a bit. And Agamemnon, who had our children that we see either here or in other operas. We don't get to meet Iphigenia here, but we get to meet her in wonderful operas by Gluck. And then we have Clytemnestra, who also has a little bit of She's descended from Zeus several times over because, as we know it, the opera incest is permitted if you are superhuman. Um, so we have Zeus with one of the Pleiades. Well, that's impressive, one of the stars. And then uh, Lacedaemon, who is Sparta. That's another word for Sparta. Amiclus doesn't come into it very much. Argolus is Argos, a very famous city, and so on and so forth. Then we have uh, Clytemnestra's grandfather, marrying Gorgophone, who's the daughter of Perseus. We meet him every now and then on stage. Perseus, the son of Zeus and Danae. 
who will come back in Strauss later, who is the founder of Mycenae and Andromeda. So in other words, while Puccini is writing about people you could actually meet on the street in La Boheme and Madame Butterfly, Hoffmannsthal and Strauss are not attempting this. They are not dealing with the people next door. It gets better. Who were Clytemnestra's parents? The king of Sparta and his wife Leda. Well, if you love art, you know who Leda is. She had an encounter with Zeus in the form of a swan and was pregnant at the same time by both her mortal and immortal impregnators. She dropped two eggs. Out of one came Clytemnestra and Castor, and out of the other, Helen and Polydeucus or Pollux. Castor and Pollux, the Gemini. Castor being their mortal brother, and so on and so forth. Helen marrying Menelaus and starting this whole war, and so on and so forth. Um, you don't need to memorize that. You're supposed to be confused. There are a lot of operas that deal with this moment in myth or history or whatever it is, the returns from the Trojan War. Never mind even the ones that deal with the build-up to the Trojan War. I've already mentioned Idomeneo, but there's also, just off the top here, Il Ritorno d'Ulisse in Patria, Monteverdi, Dido and Aeneas, Iphigenie en Tauride, Le Troyen, d'Egyptische Helena, certainly, Morning Becomes Electra, those are the most obvious examples. There's also, but there's also, in our story here, of the son, Orestes, who is being awaited, who has to kill his parents in one form or another, his mother and stepfather, or kill them in one way or another. But should he do it? Is that right or wrong? Of course, this brings up Hamlet, well known to every English speaker. But there, there's also another connection. Yes, Richard Wagner, um, The Ring of the Nibelung. I, here I have a, a, a print from a, the book, The Nibelungen Lied, but I just liked it because it's vaguely Greek in its looks, and it's also very confusing, and a lot, of, a lot is going on. Everyone seems to have a revenge issue with everybody else, as one does in The Nibelungen Lied. Um, there are, a few super, there are a few structural similarities between Wagner's Ring and the opera Electra. Now, of course, you're going to say, you're kidding, right? Electra is under two hours, and the ring is not. But the ring is almost entirely, it's 90%, and yes, I did count once, about 20 years ago. It took most of the summer. It's a chain of two people confronting each other one-on-one -on -one conversations, punctuated by some big explosions. Um, and like that, so is Electra. That, except for a brief introduction, it is all pretty much two people talking to each other, or mostly. Except for Electra's opening monologue, which is also a dialogue with someone who isn't there, with her father Agamemnon. We know that from the beginning, and she keeps, we know that the motif, da, 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 
that was out of key, I'm sorry, but you know the motif, uh, represents Agamemnon, and she sings a duet with that motif. So it is still, I would say, a confrontation with someone who just happens to not be there. And it, in other ways, it's like The Ring, in a more important way. The Ring, you could say anything about The Ring, what it's about. But one thing everybody agrees it's about is one, an old corrupt order giving way to a new order. Um, that works really well in opera. That's how the 16th century was understood during the 19th century, the time of the, the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, whatever. It was viewed as the pivotal time, which is why in the Romantic era in the 19th century, if you wanted to set an opera, you set it in the 16th century. That was opera time, time of change. Um, previous to that, you look to the Greek myths and specifically the day after the Trojan War where you get this idea of one order replacing another. Electra, remember our family tree slide, I won't go back to it, but she represents the end of the age of heroes and the dawn of the age of humans who have free will, which if we were to go on with this trilogy in Aeschylus, we would see on the stage in the play The Eumenides when Orestes is put on trial for um, for matricide because he kills Clytemnestra. And the role of, but in my heart I knew it was right, becomes an issue. Had never been an issue before. It is considered a moment when Aeschylus wrote it in 458 BC when everyone went, wow, it's a pivotal moment even to realize that this might have happened. Uh, so there's free will, there's all the psychological burden that goes along with that. And Valtraud Meyer, when she came up to speak with us at Sirius, uh, said something very interesting, that she understands Clytemnestra's long monologue where she talks about her tortured dreams as being she's experiencing guilt, but nobody knows what guilt is yet. And she keeps saying, how can I be sick when I'm not sick? Good morning, Sigmund Freud. This is kind of what's happening in the ring in that you go from the gods, Wotan and Fricke and the others, to their semi-divine offspring of Siegmund, Sieglinde, Hagen, who also, I mean, he's a child of a lesser god, but he is, they're the heroes. And then from there we get the humans, Siegfried, and specifically Brunhilde when she comes back undeified, disdeified having the Godhead taken away. In that great moment in Valkyrie, you hear it in the flutes, it goes and her divinity just flies away. Um, and it is Brunhilde the human who takes an action that changes everything at the end. She exercises her free will. Now, the ring was intended as an answer to Aeschylus's Oresteia. If you've ever read Nietzsche in The Birth of Tragedy, that it's a co-opting of Greek 
drama into a Germanic milieu as a way to elevate Germanic culture to the same level of regard as Greek culture, right? And that's why pedantic people like me will insist that The Ring is actually a trilogy with a, some sort of a prologue, right? You've heard that, right? Well, obviously, it's not. I mean, that's some prologue. It's almost three hours without an intermission, Das Rheingold. But still, people, it, people will talk about it that way because the Greek dramas were trilogies with another introductory satyr play. In any case, the ring deals with the same meta subject as the Oresteia, the passage of the old order, the gods in the ring, and the heroes and demigods in the Trojan War myths, to a new order, humans, without gods walking on and off the scene. They don't do that anymore, either in at the end of these plays or in our world as we know them. They don't reveal themselves to humans anymore. And in both those cases, in the Oresteia and the ring, that scene is a positive thing. This is part of what's happening in Electra too. Strauss and Hoffmannsthal are saying, you know that ring thing? We can do it in two hours, which is modern, which is the 20th century way, because we don't like heavy things anymore. Salome brought it home in an hour 20. Uh, in design, in the Wiener Werkstätte design, everything heavy and the velvet curtains and the heavy furnishing was out the door. It was all about light, more light, but the idea was that everything heavy of the 19th century was out of style. We're lightening it up. We can do this in, two, in less than two hours. But furthermore, with the help of Freud and Schnitzler, it isn't really about the Greek gods and mythic creatures from ages ago. It's myth as recurring struggles of the human psyche. And these stories, as, as per Schliemann and Evans, the archaeologists, are real again in a new way. But it's also a more critical look at this. Like at the end of the ring, there's that beautiful theme, and you th oh, everything's great now. The humans are in charge. And I think the uh, 20th century way of looking at that is, oh, Lord, the humans are in charge. <laughs> as we said later in the century, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Electra says, we are godlike who do deeds, except it's not actually true. You're not. And that becomes clear in the story. They're not deified. Um, it's also a swipe at the emerging cult of the individual, which is going on in Italy. D'Annunzio, if you've heard that, and the, the man of action, who turned out to be Mussolini. We all know how well that turned out. Does this cycle come to an end at the end of Electra? Well, that brings us to this production. Um, the, story of Orestes and Electra and all of these stories were told over and over and over again. You can go into the Metropolitan Museum and see them on literally thousands of things that are remaining. We have here um, from 1910, you get this idea of based on archaeological findings and this sort of thing, but uh, Clytemnestra is always viewed as uh, weighed down. She talks about that. Now, we'll get to this production. Patrice Chéreau, unfortunately, uh, passed away a couple of years ago. This production has been worked on for a few years. We've, we've all been working on it. Um, and premiered in Aix-en-Provence the first time, has also played at La Scala, and I believe one other place, it's slipping my mind. Patrice Chéreau, the director who, not incidentally, 
course, made his name with, for us in the opera world. He was known as in the film and theater world uh, before this, but as a relatively young man with the very famous, very at the time controversial, now legendary. And I remember the same people saying this was the end of the world in 1976, now talking about what a great production it is. That's fine, you grow. Um, production of The Ring in Bayreuth in 1976. One of the things that he does is, in this production, Shiro, it is somewhat contemporary. That is not unprecedented. It has been done. Just as it wasn't unprecedented in 1976 when he did The Ring, based on the look of the Industrial Revolution. It had been done before. It just hadn't been done quite so systematically, and not nearly as well, apparently. But it is rather timeless. He's taking this approach to, I'm, by the way, the Met didn't tell me to shill this production. I'm just bringing it to where we are now. I could tell you it's a bunch of trash, too, for all they care. Um, it happens to not be, and I think works very well with the way I see what Strauss and Hoffmannsthal were doing. Um, Clytemnestra is rather noticeably contemporary, um, has a rather good hairdo. She often, traditionally in most productions, is in very grotesque makeup and a lot of rattling jewels. Now, she does say at one point, I'm wearing these talisman, this talismans to ward off evil dreams. Of course, they don't work. And she does that sort of kind of clasping a rather chic necklace, uh, which I thought was very powerful. Um, some other interesting things that go on is uh, they take a servant off to be flogged at the very beginning, only they don't. And they're, they're cleaning clothes, and they're beating them on rocks. And that's the flogging because you hear it in the music. this gets is of, gives is of utter banality of the the misery of this house this is a daily grind um, and it will open in silence with sweeping and scattering of, of seeds and watering and all these things that we would now call the banality of evil um, one of the interesting things about that servant woman who is said to be taken off to be flogged is we have five serving women who open the opera in that one scene before it becomes before Electra comes on she doesn't leave again and it is two mezzos a contralto a dramatic soprano and a lyric soprano I think that's right 
And the lyric soprano is usually, you could look back in the archives of the Met or the San Francisco Opera or several others, you often find a lyric soprano who is sort of an up-and-coming young artist in the role. To have this idea of, of, of a very young woman. And this fifth serving woman is the one out of all of them who are saying, oh my God, Electra's so awful. Have you seen her? And she's disgusting and she sleeps with the dogs and she's rude to us and she's weird. We don't like her. And the fifth serving woman is the one who's saying, she's royal. She is Electra. You're not, she's been mistreated. That's why she's like that. Who are you to judge? An interesting voice in the group therapy dynamic. And they all turn on her. And one of the things that uh, you'll notice in this production is it is a woman who sung at the Met in the 1980s, Roberta Alexander, in very notable roles like uh, Bess and Vitellia in La Clemenza di Tito, which there, there's always there's an interesting connection. There are many interesting connections between Mozart operas and Strauss operas, even though superficially you wouldn't think so. But this would be another one. Um, and she has been in this production since it first was worked on and since its premiere in Aix-en-Provence. And uh, Chereau's idea was that he wanted someone who represented memory and a span of time and remembered a time when this family even despite its lineage and the curse that had been on it for seven generations, because it's always seven, was somewhat functional. And that that is in her music, and you will hear that. So that is what she's doing there. Um, the thing that people are talking about most in this production uh, is the ending, because we do have this issue of the dance that Electra says she's going to perform this victory dance, a really grotesque one, where she's going to sacrifice all the horses and members of the household on Agamemnon's grave after she, she sees to it that Clytemnestra and Aegisthus are killed. Now, does she mean this? Are we meant to take this literally or what? And does that make her, how does that break the cycle or move toward breaking the cycle? And not only that, and if, who has seen this opera before on stage? It's incredibly difficult to stage. As you know, it is hard to ask someone to sing a role like this and then dance. Hello, Salome. Very, very difficult to find a way to make it what it can be. And of course, you want something cathartic, and that's been attempted with varying degrees of success, and Electra dancing herself. <laughs> my father, my late father, gone many years now, loathed this opera. And he loathed it. Again, it was that melody versus dissonance thing. As he used to say, wow, it ends in a waltz in C major. Was that all he could come up with? <laughs> and my father, who had met Richard Strauss, and, uh, didn't get the message like, no, wait, if Strauss did it, we need to figure out why. Um, and so oddly, there is this, this dance, it's not exactly a waltz, but it's a little bit like a waltz. It, is, it does go to C major. Um, that 
she refers to in her monologue when she's talking about, I'm going to kill everybody, and the blood will flow on your grave, my beautiful father. And so then she does this dance, and again, as I said, in the libretto, she falls senseless. In this production, she is senseless before she falls. In other words, instead of performing the dance, there's a, she can't. She can't really move. It's sort of a, is it catatonia? Is it a realization that like, wow, that didn't feel as good as it's supposed to have felt? Is it, but then why is the music there? Is Melody telling the truth? What happens now? Sophocles didn't know. Hoffmannsthal didn't know. What's going on here is very ambiguous. There is no closure. And there is a line in the libretto, and it, it, it's a derivation of Sophocles, where Chrysostomus says, uh, death is better than living dying, um, than a living death. In other words, I'd rather die than live dead like this. At the very end, you're somewhere, you're somewhere more into a living death, it seems. Maybe. That's what I get out of it. I don't know if that's what we're supposed to have uh, understood from it. Um, so what's the takeaway here? The takeaway is that this is a great opera. It is a profound opera. There is no one way of doing it. There are other things. There are some operas where in La Fanchula del Vest, when you a contemporary opera this, you have blood that has to drop and land at a certain time in the score, or what's happening on the stage, the people you're being asked to believe, don't make any sense. That is not going on here in that same way. The people that we're seeing on the stage are not people who are responding to outer stimuli in the same way they are in the world of Puccini. They're responding to inner stimuli and inner moral or amoral uh, stimuli. Therefore, there is more than one way to understand what's happening. I don't find this production, just to bring us to the present day, particularly radical. I find it very, I find it 
exactly what Hoffmannsthal and Strauss were at, but in the terms of 2016 or 2013, rather than 1909. Uh, you won't also hear the famous laugh of Clytemnestra, if you remember Leonie Riesenek. Um, you can compete with that anyway, if, if you remember that. So I, I, for one, think that that's interesting because it's the laugh that isn't there. And I notice that Electra says, what was that news she just got? I think she was happy to get it. Not, oh my God, what is she so happy about? So again, there's ambiguity. Um, and that when we read the same commentary, and it came out in every one of the, of the reviews, which were, as far as I know, all positive, but that um, this is Strauss's most dissonant score and his most difficult, it's not. On any, on, on any level. Uh, we can approach this as a very contemporary work, both musically and dramatically, uh, with great, and psychologically and every other way, uh, with, with great, what's the word? Benefit? Profit, that's the word. Uh, with great profit to us in the audience. I hope this gave, gives you some ideas of things that are going on. Thank you so much for listening to some of these. Thank you so much for listening to episode 28 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast and Wilberger's take on Strauss's Electra. As many of you know, the Met's live in HD presentation of Electra will be taking place in theaters all over the world on Saturday, April 30th, so I hope you can all get out and see it. If you enjoyed this or any other episode of the Met Opera Guild podcast, I hope you'll let us know by leaving a review in iTunes. We always love hearing about your favorite episodes, as well as things you would like to hear more of. Thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.